Welcome back to 77 Minutes in Heaven, the Mavs podcast on the Athletic Podcast Network. I am Brian Damaris, former Director of Basketball Development for the Mavs, and with me as always, the TV play-by-play voice of your favorite Dallas Mavericks, Mark Followell. Hello, Brian. Good to talk to you. Uh, Looking forward to this week's podcast. We have some special things in store. I don't think it's going to be anything that's going to generate tens of thousands of mentions as last week's did. <laughs> yeah, you know, you're used to, because you're a big superstar, uh, <laughs> opening your Twitter and seeing the 20-plus the on your mentions pretty much every time you open it, no matter if you opened it two minutes earlier. But uh, uh, it was the first time I had been uh, in a Woj retweet or tweet. Yeah. And uh, Bleacher Report, we made some news. We did make some news last week with Mark Cuban joining us here on the uh, 77 Minutes of Heaven Athletic DFW podcast with uh, his discussion about the Mavs practice facility. But um, nothing along those lines today. I will say, though, that uh, I did. I am slowly catching up to you as you, your voice has been on Sports Center about 3,500 times, and I got <laughs> my first one. Well, you got another 3,499 to yeah. go. No, but it hasn't I'm on, been, been 3,500. Maybe yes. 35, but not 3,500. Yeah, SportsCenter ran uh, ran the first question I had about opening up on Friday and, and Cuban explaining why they weren't. And uh, that that was on there for about two days. Yeah. And uh, we got a lot of good a lot of good publicity. So hopefully we have some new listeners. And, and this week we're going to be uh, reminiscing about the 2011 – spring uh, championship run and giving you uh, our thoughts on the series and also some behind the scenes fun stories um, from from that time. And so, uh, so yeah, I think the reason we're doing this is because of what Fox Sports Southwest has been doing this month and what they've got uh, going on Tuesday night. Yes, or Wednesday night. Wednesday night, May Wednesday 13th, night. Yes, yes, will be the last two games. They've been showing all of the wins from that run. It started probably about the 25th of April, maybe give or take a couple of days. And so uh, if you're listening to this podcast before 6 o'clock p.m. Central Time on Wednesday, May 13th, uh, this gives you advanced warning of what's coming, and that will be a replay of Game 5 and Game 6. And then what we've done, Brian, on these Fox Sports Southwest replays is after all of the series have ended, we've done a show called Mavs Playoff Rewind. And we did 30 minutes after each of the series. And I've talked to, did Zoom calls with Dirk and Jason Kidd and Rick. And we, you know, we had their thoughts after the first two series. And we mixed Jason Terry in along with Dirk and then added Sean Marion and J.J. Barea to our post-Oklahoma City show that aired the other night. And then on Wednesday night, it's going to be an hour's worth of memories about the finals, uh, the aftermath, the you know good stories about some of the partying afterwards. Uh, you know, just just Uh-oh. so many perspectives on it. Uh, oh yeah, I asked Dirk and Jet some good, a couple of good questions about that. Uh, no, not not too not too much crazy, but we'll have an hours long edition tomorrow night. It will be on at 11 p.m., and at some point in time, you'll need to check your local listings. It will be replayed on Thursday in the afternoon at some point as well. But we'll have an hour-long edition of Mavs Playoff Rewind. So lengthy visits with Dirk and Jason Terry together, those two, you know, the three of us all talking at once, and then individual visits with Sean Marion, J.J. Barea, and Rick Carlisle. So it's going to be super. If you are an MFFL 
uh, hardcore, want to relive 2011 and really get it through the eyes of the most important participants, then then uh, 11 p.m. Wednesday night, May 13th on Fox Sports Southwest is going to be your opportunity. And in games, addition to watching the games. Yeah, games five and six will be on right before that. Yes, correct. Yeah, I believe it's six and 8.30. So we're those are not getting cut down very much. Those games are being shown as reasonably close to possible uh, in their total entirety, including obviously some celebration stuff from, from uh, game six. Well, you know, looking back at that run, that spring, uh, I was trying to think at a macro level kind of how I was feeling. And you have to remember when, you know, we kind of look back and we're like, oh, yeah, you know, that was our this year's difference, our magical run. But when you start, you know, that first game against Portland, you don't know that this is the magical right. run. This is just another playoff run. They'd had many consecutive playoff appearances at that point. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you're just kind of going through it. And I think – once the you know the game four loss was like okay here we go again right mm-hmm. yes against Portland and then they got through it and they were able to close out on the road and I enjoyed the Mavericks rewind after that where J Kid and Dirk were like hey you know a we got past that hump of mm-hmm. big law lo- big loss big right. lead lost yes yes had our mental fortitude tested and we responded and then. Secondly, I liked how Jay Kidd said, and we, we closed down on the road, and we learned how to do that. Mm-hmm. And that then builds for what you have the next series. Mm-hmm. The next series, you're, you're facing the two-time defending champs. Yeah. You don't have home court. Well, then you win two on the road. Right. And I think that's where, for me, everything changed. Mm-hmm. Because then it's like, and San Antonio had lost in the first round, the one seed. Yep. So they had lost to Memphis in six games. Uh, so... And we're actually quite lucky they didn't lose in five. It took Gary Neal with the miraculous buzzer beater, or they were going to lose on their home floor in game five to Memphis, as a matter of fact, Brian. So you have open runway, so to speak. This, this mm-hmm. Now you, you, you really have a chance. Mm-hmm. And that's when I kind of start getting nervous, because as you and I talked about, you know, I think our motto for that spring was kind of the Herb Brooks of, if you don't make the most of it, you're going to take it to your effing grave. Yeah, Herb Brooks, what he told the guys before the gold medal game, the 1980 U.S. Olympic hockey team. You know, because after the semifinal yeah. game was the Russia game. Yes, after they had upset Russia and then, yeah, we're playing Finland. If you don't win this game, you're going to take it to your effing grave, except he didn't actually. He actually. Yes. <laughs> it was more colorful. Yeah, exactly. He, he, but the he reason for that is you did the hard part. Mm-hmm. Not that the Lakers' first two games were the hard part, but – You've now put yourself in a position where this is a real chance, mm-hmm. and that made me ner- that that just made me nervous watching the games because not nervous like defeatist, but just okay. This is a real a real chance now, mm-hmm. and let's not have an injury or a screw up or something happen to to miss out on this opportunity because with the age of the team and where things were. I didn't feel comfortable there would be this kind of opportunity coming down the pipe again. I mean, I said it all the time when I was making my appearances with the guys on the ticket that it was the last best chance and that people knew it. And During you know, that time. Yeah. they. I mean, not that anybody was necessarily ever speaking to it. Nobody was saying, we realize this is it. Because nobody, never, no one in that situation is ever going to say that, of course. But I think that there was just a collective vibe about it 
that, especially given the age of the team, as you said, and the fact that it was a collection of players, and I said this many, many times, that it was a collection of players who had an enormously long list of individual accolades. An MVP in Dirk's case, uh, Jason Kidd, multi-time All-Star. Dirk, obviously, multi-time All-Star. Trix was a multi-time All-Star. Uh, you know, Jason Terry had won sixth man of the year. Tyson had had a very accomplished career at that point. Peja Stoyakovic had been an all-star. I mean, you had a long list of dudes who had done a lot of things in the NBA, except win a championship. And so I think that that brought out the best in that group. It brought out the, um, you know, absolute commitment to one another to be, you know, the, the, we're in the trenches, you know, whatever sort of battle metaphors that people like to use for that stuff. We're in the foxhole together. We're in the trenches and we're fighting for one another in a way that, you know, it, you're just galvanized together in a way that you don't necessarily see in team sports too terribly often. So, so that's, you know, my macro level of it. I mean, there was a lot of anxiety though, dude. I mean, there was a lot of anxiety. Uh, and I think, you know, for me, it was it was past the nervous point that you're talking about. It was anxiety because I knew that the consequences, or I didn't know, but I felt like the consequences of it were that you know we would never have another chance. Yeah, I agree with you 100. We would never have another chance, and that would probably mean that that you know it would be it would be immense disappointment. It would be you know what would the future be for Dirk here? You know, would he then be compelled at a later stage in his career to go ring chase? Yep. And you would not have, you know, and and he's, he even himself admitted that he might have been. Right. You know, sure. That, that, oh, yeah. That, I think it's likely that if they if they didn't win that year, and assuming they didn't, you know, win the next couple of years, uh, that you yeah, know, when his that, next contract ran out, yeah. yeah, yeah, or you or you trade him to try to get a little value back right. for him at some point in time. Uh, so there was, yeah, there was an immense amount of anxiety, is how I felt about it on the macro level. Um, and I think you'll you'll find it interesting tomorrow to hear what Dirk had to say about how exhausting the run was. And so that's why he said, you know, kind of in a joking reference to the aftermath celebration of it, he said that we were just exhausted. And so I think had we won in 2006, he said the party would have been bigger. But this took so much out of us that, that we were just kind of, you know, for as much fun as they ended up having at the parade and some of the things, there was also kind of a subdued nature to to what the post-championship celebration was in some regards, at least initially anyway. Um, you know, another thought on the macro level, you were just kind of sharing that. I'm with you. I, I've actually had somebody ask me a question on Twitter. When did you know that something really special was possible? And I said I thought it was after they won game two in L.A. And to, to some degree, you know, they had to fight their ass off to win game three. Remember, we've oh, seen that, that was a key game because if you if you let them have a little life, then you're in trouble. Again. Yes, yes, absolutely. And you know, we may have addressed this in one of our past podcasts, but after the Mavs won Game One in L.A. in the second round, and I and I was saying this by the way on the ticket, it's like, look, you are catching the Lakers at the right time if there is a right time to catch them. Three straight finals, two of which they won. The hunger level on for some, not Kobe. But for some members of the team, the hunger level has to be down a little bit. The motivation level has to be down a little bit. This is the time. And so, and especially if you're getting them a little bit earlier in the playoffs, because the farther it goes, probably the more inspired. The more they sniff that ring. The more yeah. they sniff that chance for a three-peat. It's like the second round was like the perfect time to get them because they still probably weren't at their on their best game. Um, you know, the the grind 
it's, it sounds weird. I would say the later you go, the less of an effect of three straight trips to the finals would be a grind, but I think you start sniffing it. Then I, I still think the cumulative effect of all those playoff games kind of mattered a little bit in terms of mental, emotional, physical fatigue and how sharp were you and how much of a stomach did you have for the fight? Plus, I think they're probably going into it like, all right, you know, we're playing the Mavs. Yeah. We're not really sweating this. We're at home. Let's just. Let's just take care of business, well, and then and, all of a sudden they lose game one. And then I spent 48 hours in L.A. and, and was in a, a car a lot going to, you know, social things and appearances and, you know, like talk radio appearances and things like that. And so I just spent a lot of time listening to sports talk radio in L.A. for those two days between the end of game one and the beginning of game two. And the the theme was... Well, we respect the Mavs, and the theme was from L.A. media. I'm not from the Lakers, but the theme was, and the whole thing I heard on talk radio for two days was, we respect these Mavs. They fought a lot harder than we think. They played a heck of a game. Kudos to them. But they just, you know, they just pissed off the Lakers now. They've just poked a bear. And so, you know, now they've woken, they have awakened the Lakers, and they're going to get the best Laker team moving out, moving from moving forward. From and Kobe said that after, uh, you know, the first two games. Even after three games, he's yeah. like, you know, we're gonna we're gonna come back and take care of business, you know. <laughs> but and that's his mentality. The great thing after that game one win, whenever I sit there and heard two days of, well, now they've really just made the Lakers mad and they're really gonna get the best possible effort from the Lakers was that the Mavs played infinitely better than the Lakers did in game two and played infinitely better than they did in game one. I mean, the Mavs really, if you've seen and watched these replays, I mean, they won game two quite easily. Yeah, by twelve. Yeah. And honestly, it was like eighteen or twenty with about two and a half or three minutes to go. And it got to 12, and that was that was it. And, you know, our test, you know, went off the rails and had the flagrant foul on JJ that led to him getting suspended in the next game. Um, so that was, you know, on that macro level of what you and I were, what you were talking about a minute ago, Brian, I'm kind of in the same boat. The game two, three time of the Lakers series was the time it's like, okay, this could happen because you don't have San Antonio to face, and so you're either going to get an eight-seed Memphis team or a young – but you know, dangerous Oklahoma City team. And the other thing, too, Brian, was it's like if you were ever going to catch the Heatles-era Miami team, that was the time to do it in their first year. You know, I think you and I discussed that at the time, and I still believe that all these years later, that you were getting them before they'd had a full year of cohesiveness and when I think that they were playing with an enormous amount of pressure because, look, if you remember the whole vibe then, if you were outside the 305 area code in 2011, you were a Maverick fan. I mean, basically, yes. the entire country was pulling for the Mavs because LeBron was quite villainized at the time for uh, going to Miami and especially how it all went down with the way it was handled. Yeah, uh, you know, just being around with Cuban a lot that summer and fall, uh, wh wherever we were, and I'm talking about Montreal, Vegas, L.A., different places, mm -hmm. um, the common theme was people coming up, not saying congrats, but saying thank you. Yeah. <laughs> right. Because literally everybody outside of Miami was rooting against Miami. Right. Right. Because of that. Yeah. And it was amazing that the whole country was was for the Mavs. And not only that, I think there was appreciation. And Barkley has said this, that Dirk's title was the most purest because, you know, he didn't go somewhere for the ring. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a super team. Right. You know, all of this. It was a guy who stayed home. Yep. Won it the right way, you know. Experienced the difficulties and went through the whole process. Right. Yeah. Beating the team that they had lost to. And as you said, you know, you look at the veteran 
the the closing lineup on this team, you know, Tyson had nine years in the league, Kid 16, uh, Matrix and Jet 11, Dirk 12. I mean, that is a veteran team yes. that had not won. No one on the team had won. The coach hadn't won in his third stop. Yep. Uh, had so, won as a player, but right. Rick, anyway, with as Boston, a, a role player. And so, you know, it, yes, there, there was that unique element. And then there was that part of it that everybody, and, and I think you and Coop did a great job in that post-parade uh, celebration in the arena because yeah. you interviewed every single player, mm-hmm. that every single player at some point had a major role mm-hmm. in that run. Corey Brewer, we don't win game one without Corey Brewer. Yeah, game one against the Lakers series. And tomorrow night when people are, are if you're listening to this on Wednesday tonight, if you're going to watch these replays on Fox Sports Southwest, notice that this is really when Brian Cardinal and Jan Mahimi stepped to the forefront. Jan had that big, Mahimi had the big uh, buzzer beater at the end of the third quarter that stretched their lead. And I looked at the game six box score and hold on to your hats for this one. Now, you know from years of doing our post-game show together that I don't put a whole lot of emphasis on individual plus-minus in a game. I'm, I'm pretty, you know, I, I don't judge that, use that as a tool to judge a player's performance very often. However, I'm going to suspend that thought because I do think that there is something to this. The Maverick plus-minus leaders in Game 6 in the closeout game in Miami, uh, three players were a plus-18. Jason Kidd, Sean Marion, and hold on to your hats, Brian Cardinal. Yep. Yeah. How about that? Well, Brian Cardinal, I remember, and, and I'll get to uh, our post championship celebrations here later, but I do remember when we were at the Loon watching on that Monday night after the title, yeah. Sunday night, <laughs> they were yeah. replaying the game on NBA TV or ESPN or something. Mm-hmm. And we're all watching. It was the third quarter where, you know, Cardinal had a pretty hard foul on LeBron or Wade. I can't remember who. Yeah. And, you know, he was just – he was out there to get his six fouls and and, yep. and throw his weight around and yep. and do his – and we were all just going crazy and loving it. <laughs> but in also that stretch, I think he drew a charge. Yeah. He hit a three. No, but it was very important that role he had. Yes, yes, absolutely. And <laughs> – all right, we'll, we'll get to that loon celebration and Brian – because even Jason Terry has a story about that that I'll give people a little bit of a sneak preview of. And, uh, you know, of course the <laughs> – <laughs> the, the the key part that Brian Cardinal had, and he's still very close to Dirk, is, you know, in that game six, remember in the first half, Dirk was cold. One for 12. And Jet was good, and everybody yeah. else was good. And so, you know, Dirk was down himself, and he was obviously tight, and, mm-hmm. and Cardinal in his Cardinal way yep. that we've gotten to know and love uh, goes up to Dirk and is like, hey, man, it's all good. You got all the bad shots out of you. <laughs> You know, and it you will of, he'll dirt tell that story tomorrow yes, night. And, and, okay, good. And 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 you know, dirt kind of gets a wry smile, and it and 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 he admits that kind of loosened him up. Just yep. the goofiness of Cardinal, and and you know, the personalities on that team is another thing because they all were, you know, what I loved even after the the Mavs rewind after the Oklahoma City series is. You know, Jed, Jed will say anything. Jed is crazy. And <laughs> Jed you, saying you understand something why, like, w- Bob Sturm of the Athletic DFW calls him one, a member of the Irrational Confidence All-Star. Yes, yeah. he's just, he's out of control. And <laughs> and he said something, and Dirk just, and, and, you know, put his head in his hands as Jed's talking because he's like, I've heard Jed just go off on something like this. Like, what's he talking about? And and it was just like, you love that. And, you know, and and. Deshaun, we know, how, you know, he was off in his own world. And and all these guys had, you know, Matrix is, 
you know, uh, he's just, you don't even know what he's saying half the time. And right. so, but I think all that was just like so vital to the chemistry in there. Yes, yes, no, absolutely it was. And I think that's why all of those guys, I mean, there's just such a respect and repre- uh, appreciation that we all have for them and that they have for each other because uh, everybody, you know, they realize that uh, what everybody brought to the team, you know, they all brought their each little unique component to the team on the floor and to the dynamic of the team off the floor. I think one of the unsung heroes is, is, was the assistant coach Gergs because he he uh, he would Tim sit Gerdich, yeah. he would sit on the end of the bench, and I don't even know what his role was during the playoffs. I think his role was just well, you can tell us his real role: player development, player development, yeah, player development coach. It, the role I I give him was uh, Dirk listener whisperer because yeah he Dirk would you know he kind of had a little bit of Jordan in him in that he would get really frustrated either his own play or their players or refs or just the other whatever it was uh-huh. and he would go to the end of the bench when he was not in the game and just light into Gergs like just <laughs> venting just just letting it all out whether he sometimes he'd put his jersey over his nose sometimes he would just forget it and just just Lay and, and Gert would, yep, mm-hmm, yep, okay. And he would just kind of say yes and let him let it all out. And then Dirk would be fine and he'd go back into the game. But it was so important for him to have that mm-hmm. outlet of just whatever his he needed to kind of vent. Yeah, that's true. That's true. You know, that that's even even a guy like Tim Gergery sort of speaks to the unique nature of that run. And people are like, well, who are you guys talking about? And if you're like a super duper hardcore MFFL, you remember. That he spent a short window of time, I think three seasons here, as a as the head of player development. But the thing about it is people didn't know very much about him because he was intensely reluctant to do any sort of media because he didn't want to bring any attention to himself. He wanted no part of that. However, as intensely uh, as, in- as intensely as he avoided shining a light in himself and uh, craving media exposure, that guy was just as intensely respected and appreciated oh, by the players. No question, and, and that's why yes. Dirk went to him because he did respect him. Yes, absolutely. That guy was was loved by that team, and I mean, and not just Dirk. I mean, it worked with Kid, worked with Kid a lot on his shot. So that's why you know. I mean, remember Brian, Jason Kid led the entire league. Now, granted, of course, playing more games than anybody helps, but Kid led the entire league in made three pointers. During that playoff run, he let in the in the 2011 playoffs. Jason Kidd's 43 made three pointers were the most by anybody else in the whole playoffs in 2011. Not Starting bad. with Game One, yeah, of yeah. the Portland when series. he made six, yeah, not bad for a guy who uh, came into the league named Asin, you know, jokingly named yes. Asin Kidd because he didn't have a J. So, <laughs> and, and Kidd was so important for this team. I remember when we traded for him, you know, after Nash. And obviously, we had very excellent teams after Nash. During you know, Jet was Jet. The Jet trade was as a result of losing Nash. Right, right. They drafted Devin Harris, uh, traded Jamison to to uh, the Bullets, then to get the draft pick for Devin. Yep. And then traded uh, Antoine, Antoine Walker, Walker to Atlanta for Jet. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but you know, Devin was young. Jet was not really a one, um, and you know. Dirk missed that getting the ball a half second early, getting that floor general, getting mm-hmm. that guy who could just run the team. And I just remember the whole time, and even watching these games now, you know, when in transition, when when Jay would have the ball, 
you just felt comfortable. You just like, okay, we're in good hands. He's, he knows what he's doing. He's going to make the right play. Yep. Did you, I, I'm obviously, I know you did. Uh, games two and four of the Miami final series have already been replayed by Fox Sports Southwest. Those both happen on Sunday night. Um, and, and during pandemic time, game two has been replayed by ESPN, by NBA TV. I mean, I think most people have had multiple opportunities, if you're seeking it out, to see the 15-point comeback that the Mavs had. So, there's, you know, that's, that's been fairly well chronicled what happened in game two. But game four doesn't get replayed and doesn't get talked about as much. And that's the Dirk flu game. But watching it the other night on the replay on Fox Sports Southwest, man, what a game that was to watch because that was a grinded out fourth quarter. I mean, when neither team was playing their best basketball, if you're going to judge best basketball on shot making. Now, maybe you could say it's because great defense was being played and the magnitude of the moment and the competitive nature of the game. And that's why shots weren't being made is because everybody was so locked in uh, defensively. But that was just, uh, you know, that was another significant comeback, by the way, with the Mavs being down by nine points early in the fourth quarter. But to watch that game four the other night, man, how hard fought that game was that to me was probably the most important game of the entire run because you're down two one yes you lose that it's it's over yeah you're down three one and it's over and dirk was under the weather and, and he was really under the weather it yes. wasn't like he had the sniffles yes he was in it was a regular season game there's no there's zero percent chance he plays correct i mean a 102 degree i mean yeah. 102 degree temperature and it showed in his game. I think he had 14 points. You know, he yeah. didn't have a great game, but yep. he, you know, he he gutted up what he needed to do. Yeah, especially in the fourth quarter. Um, but yes, I mean that was an absolute. That again, going back to the nervous and anxiousness, that was one where you know after you win game two, you're you're feeling good, and then you lose game three. Right? Yeah. It was uh, 88, 86. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, with Dirk missing a game. shot at the buzzer to tie it. Interesting note: games two, three, and four. The difference in the the uh, two teams was two points, two points, and three points, which is the closest three consecutive games ever in the history of the finals. Yes. I think I, I saw a Mavs PR tweet this week. It was the first time that there had ever been three straight finals games that had been decided by one possession since the 40s. Right. Yep. And so, yep. yeah, you come back after game two, you're like 1-1, one, one, and it was 2-3-2 two, two back then. And so, you know, it's hard to win three straight at home, yes. obviously. Sure. But – you still want to win at least two of those three, and then to lose game three in a very tough game, you know, game four was an absolute must. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, what was interesting about it, looking back at these games, uh, was the defense the Mavs played. And, and Dirk mentioned it, I think, a few times on your rewinds. If you go back and look, and, and it, you know, you can look Wednesday night at these two games. I mean, they were flying around on defense. I mean, the defense was extraordinary and I mean, unbelievable and how they how well they implemented zone defense yes i mean that was such a staple of that team and, and it was just i mean the level of play was i think dirk even said like wow we were really really flying around arms and legs moving everywhere i mean they were they gave up a hundred points Four times in 21 games wow. in, that, in that playoff run. And I believe, if memory serves, they gave up less than 99 times out of the 21. <laughs> I mean, on the first Mavs Rewind we did, Brian, on Fox Southwest, they, we, we, we ran a graphic 
the 88.2 points allowed per game in the Portland series is the second best defensive series, scoring defensive series in Mavs playoff history. Uh, the best is the 06 first round against Memphis. But that was the second best. And the Mavs allowed 88.3 points per game against the Lakers in the conference semifinals. So that's the third best defensive scoring performance by the Mavs in a series in the entire history of the team. So, I mean, that was, you know, any way you want to look at it, slice it, dice it, the best collection of defenders and best uh, implementation of team defensive scheme and strategy that they've ever had in the playoffs, obviously. And and that defense was lead then led to those comebacks. It led to pulling away because it gave you the transition opportunities and the easy buckets to get yourself rolling. Mm-hmm. And it was so important. And with with uh, J-Kid and Matrix and Tyson, and even Jet, you know, he, I like Dirk likes to rib him, but he held his own on D as well. Yes, he did. And, and Dirk played well in the scheme, especially in the zone scheme. Um, I mean, that's, that's amazing. And I just encourage people to watch and just see him flying around mm-hmm. the way they were. It's, it, great it's, it's just amazing. And in their losses, uh, just kind of a general point on stats, uh, they, they only had lost five games. They only lost after that Portland uh, debacle. They only lost one more game on the road, and that's game one in Miami. Right. And of all their losses, they averaged 3.2 uh, points deficit per loss. Yeah. So they, they weren't lost, getting blown out. They lost a, a close game three to Miami. I don't remember what game one was. And then they game lost. Game one was eight points. Eight that points. was their biggest loss. Um, they lost by. Five and two to Portland by six to Oklahoma City in game two, and then by eight and two to Miami. Wow, man, what a run that was! What a run! So, I mean, they were you know, they were playing really, really well. And that you know, you mentioned it, it's weird because I remember saying this in the 03 playoffs when I was working for the team and doing statistical reports before and after every game, and you're traveling. Um, it's a sprint and a marathon at the same time Mm -hmm. because it's lasting a long time, but you're just constantly running at a hundred miles an hour. Yeah. (laughs) Boy, that is a great analogy. I've never really heard anybody put it that way, but that's, yeah, you're, you're You're just exhausted. Yeah. You're at a high level for a long period of time. It is. That is a really, really good way to describe it. A sprint and a marathon at the same time. It's like running the 800 meters. And, And the emotions are. You know, and fans go through this too. But when you lose, you think you're never going to win again. Yep. And when you win, you kind of think, oh, yeah, yeah we, we got, got this. It. <laughs> I mean, we're even talking about it like, you know, what our mindset was at the time. Uh, you know, after like a lot of those games and feeling good and feeling bad. And I mean, I got the plane flight home, dude, from Portland after that Brandon Roy it's game. It's the worst. I, people can't understand. So you've experienced this. I've experienced this. The locker room after a devastating loss is. The worst. Yes. You don't want to make eye contact. Yep. Then you get it on the bus. Yep. Then you get it on that plane, especially Portland to Dallas. Three and a half hours. It, it's miserable. Yep. And, you know, what you don't want and what the Mavericks wanted to avoid in game six in Portland is, you know, you don't want to fly back home with a loss. You especially don't want to lose at home when you can close out and then got to go back and fly yeah. one more game to close out on the road. I mean, it's just, it's an awful feeling. Mm-hmm. And 
I know we're bouncing around a little bit, but but you know what really saved the day after that game four in Portland because it was miserable. And that plane flight, you know, I sit next to and have, you know, for 15 years, sitting next to Victor Villalba, the, the great Maverick Spanish radio voice. And we're just sitting there. It's like, man, why are you like you're proving your critics right? You know, you're yes. you know, when you do this, yeah, it's all, like, all the doubts of oh, here we go again. Yes. I mean, when when the trash bag Laker game, you the one and done boys. And I mean, and everybody just, was picking Portland. That yeah. was the chic pick. Yeah. It's like what? It's like you're just how do you do this? And we just sat there. I mean, I didn't do like one single ounce of prep for game five. It's just like, I'll worry about it the next day. You were, you, you, know? were, you were just pushing the call button for another Jack Daniels. <laughs> I mean, it's like, uh, uh, like the wifey who wasn't the wifey then, but, but, you know, I think that she uh, maybe sent me an email and I looked at it on the Wi-Fi or texted me before I left or something like that and said, you know, that. She was going to be out with some friends and, you know, since I was going to, we we're going to be getting back at 10 o'clock, you know, come meet him out. And it's like, I don't, I don't want to do that because then I'm going to have to like, listen to like guys that are at this group of people that we're going to be hanging out with. Like, well, what the hell happened? And right. It's like, I don't, I, I don't even want to do this. I, I don't even want, I don't want to get into a fight. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But here's what saved the day. And it was talked about on that rewind show that we did after Portland. Dirk did it. And Tyson was great in game five in terms of how he played his I'm not going to let these guys lose attitude. But Dirk's demeanor, and, and, and by the way, Ben and Skin were traveling on those road trips, and, and Skin has told this story many times as well, that Dirk walked on the bus and like fist-bumped everybody. And he was on the second bus. I was on the first bus going to the airport. He fist-bumped everybody and said, we're going to be okay. I mean, he walked down the aisle, even like every staff member, every player, and it's just like, we're going to be fine. And Rick addressed it on that uh, Portland playoff yeah. rewind that he said there was a focus and a competitiveness and a just a locked-in nature about Dirk to play that game that night that I had never seen out of him. And it was probably one of the few times that Dirk made like kind of the pregame speech. You know, yeah, not, he's not a very vocal leader. Yeah, he was a lead-by-example kind of guy. And that was one of the very rare times in his career that he did like have a specific message, not that it was a big long winded thing and not that it was like, you know, Newt Rockney or anything like that, but it was a short to the point motivational needed speech that he had before, you know, or, or speech might not be the right word, but you get what I'm saying, Brian, yeah. he had a few things to say before the game. They were very important, very motivating, very powerful. And the Mavs went out and won game five and then obviously closed out in game six. So Dirk, uh, you know, for as great as we talk about his performances and his play and his demeanor and his focus uh, and all of those things during that playoff run, uh, that is an underrated part of it, that his leadership um, really, really held things together after it could have fallen apart after the game four debacle in Portland. And I think Rick said it too, like he just wasn't going to let the team lose. Yeah. And I think part of what we talked about earlier, I think he realized this was their last best chance. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, he, he was 32, yep. you know, he, he knew that this was a good team. It was a unique team. Um, and, and it was just, I'm sorry, but something like that just wasn't going to derail him. And listen, Dirk's, you know, I think he probably skews negative in terms of how he thinks about things uh, usually, you know, but, but it was encouraging for him in that moment to be like, not be defeatist, but instead to have that positive mindset. And as yeah. we watch the last dance and see how Jordan chose to motivate, which was through negativity, through, through, you know, he probably would have come on there and, and railed on people to work harder and not let that happen. Mm -hmm. 
And that's one way to handle it. Mm-hmm. Dirk chose the other way of, I don't, you know, everybody's down already and they're having those doubts kind of creep in sure. because of past history. Uh, let's, let's take the approach of, you know, we're going to, we know we can do this. Let's go take care of business. Yeah. And ultimately they did. And so, uh, yeah, I'm really looking forward to, and, and I hope everybody else is tomorrow for, for games five and game six. Um, and five was such a huge game yeah. because, okay, now you've got it at two, two, but you're at home. It's two, three, two. You know, you lose this, you got to win one, both in Miami. Yeah. Yep. So that was such a, a massive game as well. Like it, it was so frustrating again that I, I remember I can picture myself in the arena just just so tight because yeah. okay now we got through four it, but now it's now this is the big one like no now this is the biggest game <laughs> the uh what you'll get tomorrow on Mavs Rewind is a great recollection of Jason Terry Terry had the dagger three that basically put them up seven with about 30 seconds to go in the game I mean my, my time may be a few seconds off but with approximately 30 seconds left in game five. Jason Terry hit a really difficult three from the right side of the floor, and that put them up seven. And so Jet's got some good stories to tell oh, about that. I can't wait. You and, know, but- and you're going to get another good story, Brian. You know, We haven't even addressed that one of the all-time great strategy moves of, yes. uh, especially after how well Deshaun Stevenson had fit into the starting lineup. And then, because uh, you know he had barely played so much, so many stories in this. The last two months of the regular season, Roddy B was the starting two guard on the team. Gosh, and I forgot that. Yeah, they had, you know, he had played well at the end of the previous season. As a matter of fact, Rick came under a lot of criticism for not playing him more in the playoff series that they lost as the two seed playing San Antonio, who was the seven seed. I do remember that. Yeah. And then Roddy got hurt and wasn't available to start the year. And he had that, that uh, you know, stress fracture in his foot and wasn't able to start playing until right before the All-Star break. So he goes into the lineup. And, and remember, Karan Butler had gotten hurt in January. Yeah, and Karan Butler was the second leading scorer on the team. There were yeah. a lot of people and people within the organization that thought that's the season. Mm-hmm. Yep. That 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 because of that, that oh crap. Yep. Like that was a huge, huge loss. And yep. so And Dirk you know, had just gotten hurt. You know, he had that little stretch of nine games that he missed because yeah. he'd hurt his knee like in a game against Oklahoma City, like two or three games before that. That was yeah, that was a rough part of the season. But but Stevenson played about 170 minutes post-All-Star break until the last game of the regular season. And then the veterans went to Rick after the 81st game of the season, which is a game they barely won against Houston. Uh, as a matter of fact, I think there was some deal where Jet like missed a free throw at the end of regulation but didn't realize, like he didn't know the score or something like that. And so uh, he had... He had be one of those dirt yeah. head, head and hands <laughs> moments about Jet. Yeah, and so the veterans went to Rick before Game 82. And, and said, realized that, that you know, we tied with the Lakers 2-3 uh, yep. in seeding. The reason we didn't have home court may have been played out there. Yeah, well, they did win that game they win in that Houston. Game. They did win that game in overtime, but there but was just did, a goofy they, thing in yeah. regulation. Uh, but but but, that, yeah. but they but the veteran said, you know, we think Stevenson needs to go back. This is the guy that's going to give us the best chance to win. All due respect to Roddy, and I think it's cool that Roddy's on that Fox Sports Southwest promo that you see during all these replays about thanking frontline workers. I'm glad that Roddy B's on it. <laughs> it fired me up when I saw it, but 
the veterans felt like that they needed to make a change, and they talked Rick into it. And so Stevenson went into the lineup. But then one of the all-time great strategy moves of putting J.J. in for games four, five, and six, all of which Dallas won. And so tomorrow on Rewind, or if you're listening to this on Wednesday, tonight on Maps Playoff Rewind, man, J.J. has got the whole story down of okay. how Rick called, you know, how Rick approached, you know, told him he was moving into the starting lineup and what he thought about it and what his mentality was and Man, it's just uh, it's really cool to hear JJ's perspective on that. So two things on that. One is I really enjoyed JJ's uh, first appearance on Rewind, which was after the Oklahoma City series. Uh, you liking his quarantine beard? Yes, <laughs> yeah, he is. I think he probably hit a hit uh, Salon a la mode this week because he needed it bad. But uh, you know, I really liked how he was saying. You know, his confidence was increasing. His game was increasing every game and every series. So by the time he got to Oklahoma City, he was so confident in his mm-hmm. ability to get anywhere on the court he wanted to. Yeah, he was so damn good against the Lakers and Oklahoma City both yeah. in some of those games. Maybe. And, you know, uh, the other piece is that, you know, it, it, and I'm really interested to see how Rick and, and J.J. address that on Wednesday night because making that change in the middle of a championship series yeah. is is ballsy. Yep. But one of the key things, I think, was that Rick outcoached Eric Spolster. Spolster did not make any adjustments in that series mm-hmm. or what adjustments he did make were always reactive to Dallas doing something first. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Rick doing that, I think, I mean that, that, you know, listen, let's be honest. They got, they, they weren't ready to play. Game one was just brutal. Yeah. Uh, game two, frankly, you know, you could say was a fluke. Mm-hmm. And so then they lost game three, you know, it's like they needed something to kind of change the dynamic. And I think they realized that, Yes, Deshaun was a great defensive player and, and and could hit the three when needed, but they needed that offensive punch mm-hmm. that J.J. had mm-hmm. to just outscore the other team. One of the reasons they lost in 2006 was you just can outscore this team. Right. And they didn't. Yep. And, and so – don't skew so defense, you know, so defensively, and get so bogged down in that. And and they knew that with Jay and Tricks and Tyson in the zone that they could hold their own defensively. Well, you're going to hear some great stuff from JJ on his on all that how that whole thing went down and his approach to it. So that'll be another cool aspect of it. Well, one of the things you know when we talk about this nervous energy is, and one of the fun things I think about when reminiscing about that run is kind of the pop-up partying that goes on throughout the playoffs, yeah. right? I mean, we know about, and we'll talk more about the partying after uh-huh. the win, but there's these moments of uh, in between where you're just blowing off steam or you have this nervous energy where, you know, the first one in my mind is the Mother's Day Miracle Night. Mm-hmm. That was a day game yes. on Mother's Day on that yep. Sunday. Yeah, 2.30 game on ABC. Yeah. So by 6 o'clock, and, and realize because, you know, we swept them, and Oklahoma City was in a tough seven-game series mm-hmm. with Memphis. Uh, we knew already that we were going to have, you know, potentially nine days off. Right. And for an old team, that was vital. Mm-hmm. And and they also had another, I think, six days off, seven days off before, you know, after Oklahoma City and before the finals. Right. Finals were actually moved up two days. Yeah. Yeah. I think it ended up being. I think you're right. It ended up being six days. I think they went from like a Wednesday to a Tuesday. Kind because of the the. Uh, Heat took care of Chicago in five games as well. Yep. So, you know, we ended up going out to Katie Trail Ice House, and by six o'clock, we've already got drinks in our system, and, <laughs> and and knowing that you know it's 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 a freebie, right? Um, you know, Cardinal Dirt, 
uh, Al Whitley, a lot of the, you know, Casey Smith, we are all kind of having a good time. And something I forgot about until Jake Kemp and Bad Radio sent me a picture. I had totally forgotten about this, but there was a rugby team there mm-hmm. from somewhere that was just kind of, you know, after a few drinks and a rugby ball, they start scrapping around with each other. And <laughs> there's a picture of us kind of watching them wrestle on the ground. And so I sent it to everybody in that picture, Dirk and Cardinal and everybody. And Dirk said that he still has that rugby ball, I guess, during everything, all the debauchery, that he just decided, I'm going to take this with me <laughs> and kept it. And who's going to tell him no? <laughs> yeah, who's going to tell Dirk no at that point? That's good. I don't remember. I, I think for me, like a lot of the uh, pop-up things that happened along the way, they were all after home games and stuff like that. After road games, not much really of the uh, pop-up going out. I mean, you know That happened a lot more in 2006 after road games, especially <laughs> Miami. But that didn't really happen very much uh, in 2011. I do remember the day between Game 3 and Game 4 was a Sunday in Oklahoma City. Oh, yeah. I and, got some stories on that. Yeah, somehow that resulted in going to bars in Bricktown and ended up being a pretty good time. But uh, but I don't remember a whole lot of the specifics behind that. Well, that was the other one that I was going to mention was that Sunday night. It was a Saturday-Monday with games three and four mm-hmm. in Oklahoma City. And I believe it was Memorial Day weekend. Uh, and it, it wasn't – there was no one out. I don't know. You know, it's Oklahoma City on a Sunday night. Yeah. And so it yeah. was just nothing. And we were with some Mavs, you know, folks and went out and it was – it was a crazy night. I mean, it, it turned out, it turned into me trying to buy a bottle of Jaeger at 2 a.m. from the bar. And they're like, we don't do that, sir. Uh, oh, my goodness. And karaoke. And thank God video wasn't a huge player back then. Thank God. I just started singing with some random girl, uh, I Will Survive. And it was, you know, but again, it was one of those just, uh, we'd won game three, mm-hmm. but we knew we were kind of in this, you know, we needed to take care of business in game four and, and you're just, you, you're, you're in a city and you have this nervous energy and you're like, let's just enjoy this moment. Enjoy this ride. Uh, I have a friend tell me as I kept him out from getting into a cab to go to a rave with some people we just met that I was ruining his life. (laughs) He then next morning thanked me for keeping him out of that rave. But yeah, it was a good call. It's moments like that that you know you look back and you're just like, man, that was awesome. You know, we spent uh, we spent some time down in Miami, obviously, and I do remember us going out with Mike and Corby. Um, yes, this was the Wednesday night in between games one and two, and we went to the to the infamous Clevelander, and then uh, we ended up going somewhere. And uh, yeah, I don't know how you got. I, I mean, I don't know how you got those guys into where we were going because I think the rest oh, of us, oh, I know how I got in. I, I think the rest of us were 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 not that we had to be dressed super nice, but wherever it was that we were going, at least they wanted, it was a club. They, they didn't want shorts on. It wasn't like a club club, but it was enough of a Miami club that yes, in typical Mike and Corby style. <laughs> They did not pack a pair of long pants. (laughs) Which it's Miami. I do understand that. So they just had shorts. So they're they're, we're rolling up to the club to go out. You know, it's 11 o'clock on a Wednesday night. Right. And the the doorman's like, "Uh uh-uh. You know, your buddies in shorts can't get in. (laughs) And, you know, we had made our way down to this place. And so basically I had to, you know, promise that we would 
purchase enough alcohol to make it worth their while. Good man. I think my exact quote when I pulled out, I was such a snob move, but I pulled out my platinum Amex. He was like, I'm sorry, it's bottle service. I said, we'll start with two. Does that work for you? And the, the rope was unleashed and we were let in. I had, ex- yeah, I had a similar game uh, 2006 experience of like going into a place and like the hotel had made a reservation at a place. And then we get there and the guy at the door, it's like three guys, two bottles. Right. Uh, yeah, that's what, like, exactly right. <laughs> Oh, man. because what happened was, uh, you know, Corby and Mike were originally scheduled to stay at like, you know, whatever airport hotel, mm-hmm. like literally the ones that's attached to the airport. Right. 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 And I was staying at the Fountain Blue because they were running a, a promotion, 25 percent off, you know, if you're from Dallas. Right. Right. And so, sure. Well, you don't need to convince me to stay at the Fountain Blue. <laughs> And I ran into Mike and Corby, and I'm like, "What? Well, you know, are you guys staying there too? And they're like, no. Well, they switched. Right. They Smart went guys. and paid their own way to go over and <laughs> stay, even though they were there on the station's dime. And so, yeah, they became the, you know, they were like the the going out partners for that that run. And then, of course, on the the second time we went for game six, so game six was on a Sunday. Yeah. Of course, we went out on Friday because why wouldn't you? Yes. Well, I know the team went down on Friday. Yeah. The team went down. Just you went to down get, on Friday as well. Yeah. The team flew down on Friday and we all went down on Friday and just, uh, you know, just to get settled in and get prepared. And I was really surprised when I found out that we were doing that. Uh, but we all went down on Friday and. Uh, and that was, of course, the weekend yeah. of the Versace mansion. I don't know if you ever made it out there. I never did. And I and, and honestly, man, like that whole Friday, Saturday, I mean, that was when like the anxiety was like the highest because right. it was such a long wait. And so Friday night was a pretty subdued night going out. Saturday night was an even more subdued night. And my, from my personal recollection, for me anyway, I mean, it was just like it was just like looking at my watch, counting down the hours of when are we going to get to this game on yeah. Sunday? And it's like going to the to the uh, Catholic cathedral that was next door to the hotel on Sunday before the game and praying. And wow. I didn't, yeah. you, you, you got on bended knee. <laughs> I did. Yeah, for sure, man. Let's see. I can I can look up. I'd have to look at a map. It's kind of like a unique. Um, I'm going to find. Give me a minute here while we're. Gosh, follow up. You know, for those, so this guy not only is like, you know, just preparing what he needs to do for. For the game day, but also well, just like... Giving- but I wasn't working, remember? Oh, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Coop was doing radio. TV was long since done. So I was working because Fox Sports Southwest then was doing a ton of shoulder programming. So... But the fact that, yeah. you, you know, you, you are giving some prayer offerings as well. The... Uh, let's see. Where is... Okay. So, so I'm, I'm pulling this up on the map here to remember exactly what this... Now, you were guys this, were staying the, at the Four Seasons uh, downtown. <laughs> so gonna, You were going to love this, dude. This was... I went to... This was next to the Four Seasons on Brickell. I went to the St. Jude... Uh, and forgive me if I'm not saying this correctly. Correctly, St. Jude Melkite or Melkite. I don't know. St. Jude Melkite Greek Catholic Church. There you go. Yeah. So I went to like a Greek Orthodox Catholic Church. How about that? Interesting. Yeah. Uh, it's not a Greek just, Orthodox Catholic Church. It's a Greek Catholic Church. Okay. Well, but, that's, but that that is next to the Four Seasons in Miami, across the street, basically. 
uh, across the side street. Well, yeah. I think we now have a, a an added uh, reason we won, and we had no idea that you were to that you were to uh, thank for that. Um, I will say on that Saturday night, so I was staying at the Fountain Blue, and I was with some 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 other friends from Dallas who went out there, and uh, Cuban met up with us, and we mm-hmm. went to live on Saturday night. Right, the game was on Sunday. Right, and remember the games were. The Miami games, the first two games were at nine. Right. Eastern, yeah, nine o'clock. Really Eastern. late. They're long day game yes. days. Yes. This was an eight o'clock game because Sundays they moved it up an hour. But still, I think Cuban's rationale was I, I I can't sit in my hotel room anymore. Right. Right. I need to get out. Yeah. Too much. Too much. To so think it about. wasn't like celebrating early. It was just I just need to just take my mind off things. Mm-hmm. And we went to live and had a great time. Um, but I do remember Mark was very specific like you know there was no plans of what happens if we win the right. team was going to stay overnight sunday regardless correct if they lost obviously they stay for a game seven if they won uh then they were going to stay because the game wouldn't have been over with celebrations until too late to fly home at yes. three in yeah. the morning yeah would have been ridiculous to do that. so that wasn't an issue um so but but because of the 2006, you know, parade route being printed in the paper and all of that yep. stuff after the the two wins at home, um, Cuban was very superstitious about you know there's zero planning on any idea of even what we're going to do after a potential win. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think being there, so to fast forward to what happened in Game Six, we win, uh, and I'm in the locker room and Mark is like. You know where should we go? Mm-hmm. Because no one had thought of anything, right? And I know that you. I think you went back to the Four Seasons. Is I that did. correct? I did. I think there I was a bus that went back, and and one of just just quickly before we because get there to that, was the thought to have just a celebration there. Yeah, I think because everybody was just so kind of worn out, right? And 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 just before and we just get kind to of that, last minute rent a ballroom or do whatever. Real real quick story from at the arena was that I was fortunate enough and and I barely was able to make this happen because I had somehow like lost like my floor, like the armband that you could have to get inside the ropes on the floor. Somehow I, I couldn't find it or or maybe I had it and maybe I ended up losing it later. I don't know, but it was really difficult and I finally had to find somebody from MAP security to get me by the podium. So I wasn't on the podium, obviously, that was on the floor where everybody was, the team and the coaches and Mark and Don Carter when the title trophy was raised. But I was down on the floor, um, you know, as close as I could be to it. And, like, barely made the window uh, before, like, it just too many people. Yes, they were shutting off the floor. Yes, barely made the window for that. Barely made the win- barely got in the river of people who were meandering their way back to the locker room after the on-the-floor celebration. And man, that's just, I am so grateful that I got to be in the locker room for that like six or seven or eight minute window, however long it was before media had to be let in because it was just the celebration, the champagne going off, the getting, you know, people, everybody getting sprayed with champagne, the smiles, the laughs, the high fives, and then like, Two two moments that really stood out to me after all of like just watching the guys doing the champagne and uh, pouring beer on each other was the the uh, now no longer with the Mavs but the longtime head of public relations and one and for you and I both just a longtime friend dear friend Sarah Melton she said to Rick that Mickey Arison and Pat Riley are outside the locker room and want to see you 
And of course, Mickey Harrison is the owner of the Heat. For those, for, I think most people know that. But but if you don't, you know, uh, the, they're outside the locker room and want to see you. And and so she said that. And so Rick said, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll be out there to see those guys in a minute. And and, and class move by the way by by Mickey and Pat to do that, of course. And at that moment, Tyson Chandler grabbed every. He goes, guys, guys, everybody get together right now. This may be the last time that we're all together with it just being us and got everybody around like this big area in the middle of the locker room, which had like a bunch of ice chests with beer and champagne. Yeah, it had a bunch of, <laughs> a bunch of beer in it. But he got everybody around and brought them all together and they said the Lord's Prayer. Wow. Yeah. I don't, I've never heard that story. Yep. Yep. They did that. And then, and of course, it got uh, pretty uh, exuberant at the end. Uh, the end of the, it wasn't said quite as solemn as yes. you might often. <laughs> like a Chicago Blackhawks national anthem version of yeah, the Lord's Prayer. It, it wasn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily, it didn't end with the real uh, solemn version. It ended it up. It wasn't like yours at the at the Greek Catholic <laughs> church the day before. <laughs> no, it was like an hour before I got on the bus, man, is when I went into that, so the church on that, on the day of game six. But, but yeah, he, Tyson was the one who said, you know, this may be the last time we're all together, just us. And, well, it's and funny because I I uh, I wasn't working for the team. I had no credentials of any kind, and, mm-hmm. and I wasn't in the media at the time. And so um, I was in the stands with a very vociferous crew of of Mavs fans. Yeah, that were how, there. How many people do you think Mavs fans were there? Maybe three thousand MFFLs. Probably it was that corner behind the bench. Yes, and it was towards the end of the game, very loud. And mm-hmm. you know, Miami fans are are. Fickle, they show up late, they leave early. Yes. Um, I mean, I really think there, there were a lot of 20, people there. Two, anywhere between 2,000 on the low end and 3,000 on the high yeah. end MFFLs that were there at so. that game. And so we were all staying cheering. And then after the, uh, and so what they do is they block the floor off after the, you know, what you see on TV and ESPN, NBA TV. Everybody's got their, their live shots going. Yep. And people come out for interviews. And yep. Cuban comes out. And they all come out for interviews out there. Uh, so during, and this is lasts for, you know, 30 minutes, right? Mm-hmm. And so uh, Cuban was out there and he sees me in the crowd and he goes, nose, which was my nickname, as I mentioned, because I have a big nose. Um, you know, come on. And he waved me down and got me past security to go in the locker room, which I thought was very, very cool. Yeah. Uh, because I wouldn't have been able to kind of experience any of that. I did not obviously experience what, what you did, but I got in there when the media got in there and and, and, you know, I, I didn't have a credential, but, you know, when you're with Mark, he just kind of <laughs> does that thing where he, he kind of points at his face and yeah. says, who I'm with gets to come with yeah. me. And that worked. And one of the great things about being back there, and I didn't know this occurred, there's this room in the back where they take photos mm-hmm. with the trophy. Yep. And they have a little backdrop and it's, you know, kind of official looking, but there's no real, you know, method to the madness. You mm-hmm. just kind of. You know, all the families of players and people who were back there, they they get to take a picture with the trophy and Dirk's there and he's got his MVP trophy. And, and you just kind of, there's a makeshift line and there's really nobody saying, you know, okay, it's your turn. So you just kind of go do what you want. So I'm, I found this room. And right. so there's pictures, there's a picture of me with, with Dirk holding um, the, the MVP trophy and I'm holding the real trophy <laughs> next to him. And that's good. You know, Cause I was like, well, I'm, it's my turn now, you know, no one's going to stop me. And then I got one with the, that I have upstairs. You're I, holding I, it, clutching it like Jordan. 
Yes. <laughs> oh, man, I was holding on fast. <laughs> yes, I was saying I was admitting to my singledom, because if you go into my bedroom, right above my bed, that's kind of you know, where you a place of honor, and I've got my Mavericks 2001 montage there where I have my ticket stubs. I have uh, the Sports Illustrated covers mm-hmm. uh, of the, the commemorative issue, and then that week's issue, I have the front page and the front sports page of the Dallas Morning News, and then I have a picture of me with a bunch of players from the team in our championship shirts. I've got my suit from my one suit, one shirt, one tie look yep. that I was sporting, uh, the dark suit for the funeral. Right. Um, and I and uh, you know the both trophies are in it, um, and so in that room, Bill Russell was just sitting off to the side by himself on a folding chair. Mm-hmm. There's Bill Russell. Yeah, eleven rings. Bill Russell, who presented Dirk, of course, with the MVP, yes. the, the Bill Russell Finals, because MVP he trophy. was in a picture with Dirk in the MVP and all that. And I yep. guess he just sat on the side while the chaos ensued, <laughs> and he experienced it eleven times. So he was just observing. And these pictures were professionally photographed, and they went to Sarah Melton, who then sent them off to the yep. people that got them. You know, they were sent to the team afterwards. And so, um, you know, I, at that time, I already had a, a few of the beers from that tub in the locker room in me. So I was feeling pretty good. Yeah. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to go talk to Bill Russell. <laughs> and I'm like, hey, only 10 more till Dirk catches you. And he kind of gave me a laugh and then the look of, okay, that was enough. You need to go away. Kind of look like, so I, I, I made my way away oh, from him. But, man. but yeah, you know, it was, everybody was feeling good. And then, uh, we go back in, and so that's when Mark, as I said, was like, "Well, where you know, what are we going to do tonight?" Mm-hmm. And, and as I as you mentioned, you know, there was a thought of going back to the Four Seasons and kind of having a, mm-hmm. a private gathering there and doing whatever. But then it was like, "Well, we're in Miami. Yeah, let's hit a club. You know, what? Where is the place to go?" And 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 I was staying at the Fountain Blues, and and because we had been at Live the night before, and it was kind of the hot club. Mm-hmm. It's like, well, Live was fun. Yeah, like. Like, let's go. And we literally got on the, the, the remaining team buses and drove down Ocean Boulevard, Ocean Drive and pulled up right in front of the Fountain Blue. And they have this big door to the side, these two, you know, uh, uh, side doors. And I'm, I'm kind of like you were trying to get into the locker room after the game. You know, I, I'm a nobody, right? right. I'm, I'm, if I'm not getting in with these guys, I'm not getting in. Right. So I'm literally clutching Dirk's hips from behind as we're all kind of crowding <laughs> to go in. It's like he, a conga line. And he turns around and he's like, uh, are they going to boo us? I mean, we're in Miami. Like, we're just kind of coming to crash the party, and you know. With And I'm like, don't worry about it. These are tourists. These are people having fun, yeah. you know. And These the aren't do- hardcore fans. The doors open, and Cuban's the first one in with the trophy held above his head. And I mean, the place explodes. <laughs> I don't, I, I guess they were, when they saw, you know, because we didn't alert them. We just pulled up in the buses. Mm-hmm. But they made, you know, confetti was going. I mean, it was full on party, <laughs> like a parade to the VIP tables. As I found out later from a friend of mine, we actually kicked Mickey Arison and his or Mickey Arison's family out of that special area. Wow! And they gave it to us. I did not know that. Yeah, and 
that was the Ace of Spades $100,000 bottle of champagne that yep. showed up. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember my phone eventually died during the night, but I texted you. I was like, where are you? Right. And then you eventually made your way across the across the water and, and came over. Because I went with, I, I rode, I didn't realize that a team bus went straight from American Airlines Arena to yes. South Beach. Yeah, we so, never went to the hotel. So I was on one of the team buses that did go back to the hotel. And it was quite fun at the Four Seasons because there were, like, that was where some staff was there and there were a lot of NFFL season ticket holders that had come down as well. And so, I mean, I interacted with a lot of people there and it was a blast. And then you texted me and, I mean, I left the Four Seasons at, give or take a few minutes, one thirty. Because uh, I mean, I didn't get back there until close to midnight, probably. So after yeah. about an hour and a half, maybe there, probably after that. Yeah, you know, the game started at eight with all celebration. Yeah, maybe midnight, twelve thirty. Sure. Uh, between one thirty and two o'clock, I left. I remember getting to live probably just minutes before two o'clock, and of course, that's not a problem in Miami. I mean, you know, places yeah. stay open till. I mean, some places stay open till five, sun up. Six, you know, yeah. yeah. But uh, that place stayed open till five because that's when I, I do remember that's when we got booted out that we had to leave at five a.m. Um, but, but I, well, I love, yes, I love yours. Cause I was, I think I remember texting. I was like, listen, I don't know how you're going to get in there. I got no pull, Yeah, but you, you, cause these places are packed. I mean, there's a line, there's hundreds of people trying to get in, especially when they found out this celebration was going on. Well, shockingly, the line at this point in time at basically one fifty-five in the morning wasn't very long. And I just walked up and said, I'm the TV play-by-play announcer for the Mavericks. Do you know uh, who I am? I, I, I said, this is what I do. Uh, I'm here for Mark Cuban's table. And so... And the velvet rope was open. Couldn't have been open fast enough. <laughs> and you came in and made up for lost time. You, I did. <laughs> I think, like me, you probably had about $5,000 worth of that $100,000 Ace of Spades. I, I did have a few sips out of that and, and you know, saw you and Mark and... Dirk and Cardinal and Mahimi and I'm trying to remember there's probably another couple of people there that I'm that I may be forgetting maybe Peja was there I don't remember for sure I know he was there the next night at the loom. well Jet was there Al Whitley every the whole team was yeah. you know for the most part Casey there. Smith yeah. yeah yeah a lot of guys were there um, and I I don't think all the guys stayed there the whole time you know uh, as a matter of fact Jet brought it up and what you'll see on Mass Rewind on Wednesday night he brought that up as a matter of fact that he didn't stay there the whole time and actually went back to the room pretty early that night just to kind of have some moments of self-reflection and then he did say that you know for the rest of the week you know he said my wife was great the rest of the week allowing for you know the fun times that we had for yes <laughs> the going out and the bringing buddies over to the house and you know all that business for the rest of the week yeah it was crazy and this is before a lot of cell phone pictures and all that. Uh, it was the next morning. Yeah, we know. took a lot of pictures ourselves, but I mean, and I, st- you know, I probably still, if I go back and look, still have a few of them, but not very many. Yeah, it was, in my, like I say, my phone died, but I do, I do remember the next day as I was sitting in the airport, I, of course, overslept whatever flight I had booked right. and uh, didn't leave till about four o'clock in the afternoon from Miami. And I was just sitting in the airport for hours going through my old texts and, <laughs> and then realizing that, you know, TMZ had all these pictures. And even now, if you, if you Google Mavs live, you know, celebration, or, they're all come up. You'll, yeah. you'll see me in the back and in the background <laughs> of some photos with today. a suit on, just <laughs> chugging champagne or, Pointing at somebody or just do whatever. I mean, it was absolute chaos. I mean, we were there until five o'clock and basically the whole thing shut down at five. 
And then you got back to the hotel because there was a team bus that was there. I, I, I guess I just didn't realize that you guys took it straight from the arena yes. to South Beach. But there and the was, bus actually left around four or so to go back. Yeah, they left live. Yeah, there was. A, I think there must have been there must have been another one because no, there like were a the, couple of buses. Yeah, yeah. That we were there until almost five o'clock. Basically, they started pushing us out the door between four forty-five and five a.m. and then went back to the hotel. And if I slept an hour, I would be surprised. Because it's just like, it's too hard to wind down. You're too excited. Then there's like people already calling me for like morning interviews, you oh, know, at that gosh. point, like morning sports talk radio interviews. So you did a couple towns. of buzzed interviews. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. I, matter of fact, we had a 9 a.m. bus to the hotel. And you're familiar with Tim Brando, right? Tim Brando, the he's now 9 a.m. bus to the hotel. You mean a bus I mean, 9 a.m. bus to the airport. I'm sorry. I apologize. From the hotel to the airport. 9 a.m. Jeez. Yeah. You guys didn't sleep. Um, and what time was the flight? Whenever we got to the hotel and got through security and we're ready to go. And and the funny thing about that is, by the way, we were flying the much smaller Phoenix Suns team charter, which is like a 737. You know, the Mavs team charter is a 757. So that's, that plane had been significantly damaged because it was parked at Love Field. And the night between Game 4 and Game 5 of the Oklahoma City series, a very serious, significant line of severe weather came to the Dallas-Fort Worth area that had a lot of like bad hail core storms in the th- severe thunderstorms. So we're talking about the Mavs team plane. It got pummeled by significant hail parked at Love Field the night between Game 4 and Game 5 of the Oklahoma City series. So we were flying the much smaller Phoenix Suns team charter the whole time well, during the uh, during the finals. So, so yeah, I mean, I was doing a Tim Brando's radio show, which I don't remember what, like, Yahoo Sports Radio or Sports USA Radio Network or wh- whatever it was, whatever nationally syndicated radio show that he had. I was on his show, and basically it was, like, at 8.50 in the morning Eastern time was the interview, and I said, look, uh, you know, at nine o'clock, I'm going to have to like run on the bus. And like, basically like somebody like saw me off to the side on the phone and I'm getting the wave over. It's like, if you don't want to miss this bus, right. you better get your ass on this and, bus and the right rules, now. Of course, are if you miss the bus, you miss the bus. Like you better find your own way. <laughs> Buses don't wait, especially for the TV play by play. Might wait for Dirk. They don't wait for me. Yeah. Um, so, so yeah, I did an interview like outside the hotel waiting to get on the bus with uh, Tim Brando show at basically eight fifty Eastern time. And, did, and it's like, I had to end. It's like, Tim, I got to go, man. I got to get on the bus and get out of here. Well, and tell so, me what it was like on the flight back. Oh, so, so for a while, I think a lot of people tried to sleep. I, I, I think people were just worn out. And I would say of the, the approximately three hour flight, two and a half to three hour flight back. I would say the first hour of it was pretty subdued. It was either trying to eat something or sleep. But then I would say the second half of the flight, one of the guys that works on our TV crew, who's the director of our TV crew, had been traveling through the playoffs and was doing a lot of filming to get you know documentation of things for Fox Sports Southwest and for the Mavs. And so he's going through the plane and doing some filming and we're and uh, you know, that's when I, that was my time. And I still have a lot of these pictures at home of taking individual pictures with the Larry O'Brien trophy. Uh, there's a picture, I think, of like Cuban with it sitting on a chair on an empty seat next to him on the plane. Uh, and he's asleep. Um, you know, the the second half of the flight ended up being just kind of milling about and and groups of people getting together. And so it wasn't about loud and raucous. Before. 
No, but it got fun the second half of the flight. But it wasn't. It didn't get fun from from like partying and drinking. It got fun from just reminiscing about the night before and telling stories and like you know Greg Jiling, who's one who you know played the NBA for a decade and has been an advanced scout for a long time with the Mavs. I mean, he was back there, and we're you know stories are going on with that and with Brad and Keith Grant, and there's just just all kinds of just funny laughs and stories and reminiscing about past experiences in basketball and the finals and this and it's just 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 good times man bonding and laughing and talking and storytelling and it was just very very memorable in that regard and then just kind of the buzz that built up as we were like on approach like wondering what it's going to be like when we get to love field and if you'll recall i mean that was a, a very bad summer in terms of a heat wave and so, dude, we walked off that plane at 12 noon Dallas time, and it was already probably 99 or 100 degrees. I mean, it was just like boiling hot when you got off the plane. Huge crowd waiting outside the fence at Love Field. That was in between, I guess, uh, gosh, I I'm, 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 I'm feel kind of bad that I'm, I lose track of my, my mayoral timelines in Dallas. So there was a change because from one mayor to another, and so Dwayne Carraway was mayor pro tem, but was the acting mayor of Dallas because we had, were. Oh, was Tom like, Leppard was but, running for Senate. That's what it was, and then yeah. so it was between Tom Leppard and then whoever. Gosh, forgive me for not even remembering who got elected as mayor of Dallas after that. I, I'm embarrassed to say I can't even remember at this point, but. Dwayne Carraway is the guy that shook everybody's hands when we got to the bottom of the stairs. You know, thank you what you did for the city. It's like, I didn't do a damn thing, but but I appreciate it. You took it. (laughs) Yeah, for sure. So we got to the bottom of the steps. And then, um, I mean, it was even hard to like go home uh, and wind down and and really catch up home. And you're like, oh, yeah, yeah. It was hard to wind down and get ready to go sleep that afternoon because I knew that it was. Start getting to the loon on Monday night at it was either seven or eight. I can't it was remember. seven. It was seven. Yeah. So so yeah. So uh, to go back to Miami just for a second, there also was a crew, and this is where Corby and some of the ticket people were uh, at at the Versace Mansion. Yeah, that partied all night there, which I didn't even know. But at that time, you could you still can't rent it out for parties. <laughs> um, so there were a lot of people there too. But yeah, so then at the in the locker room before Lib. So we had always had a joke in the loon, uh, and I think Tim Cato is going to write about the loon uh, at some point on the, in the athletic because uh, I did an interview with him. But uh, it was a dive bar over on uh, Lemon and uh, Lemon and McKinney. Lemon and McKinney. It's now a CVS, but no windows, just a dump dive bar that Nash and Nowitzki started going to because they lived right across the street, mm-hmm. and uh, in their early days. And so we, you know. Strong drinks, popular place. Yeah, really built in popularity in the mid-2000s. Yeah. And so we we would always joke because we went there so much, mm-hmm. kind of the, our, our friends, that, you know, wow, when we win, we'll bring the trophy here. Ha, ha, ha. Right. You know, never really took it seriously. So Cuban comes up to me. He's like, okay, so we're going to the loon tomorrow night, right? And I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> like, yeah, well, you know, let's do it. Okay. So I called the owner of the loon right there at, you know, 1230 at night. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, hey. um, we want to come with the trophy tomorrow. Can you close it down and make it a, you know, half of the place, make it a private party? Yeah. He's like, of course, you know, and 
Uh, I said, nobody gets in unless Cuban or I say so. I threw myself into the mix, <laughs> give myself a little bouncer bouncer cred. Oh, man, I didn't know you told him that. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you told Cliff that, huh? And, wow. uh, <laughs> and for some reason, I guess it was decided to start at 7, which seems a little early, but why mm-hmm. not, right? And you guys got home early. Because I missed my flight, I didn't even get, I didn't even land till like 7.30. Right. So I, I hightail at home, and mm-hmm. I'm, you know, quickly getting ready so i don't get to the loon till close to nine o'clock and you guys it wasn't crazy but you guys had started you know getting yeah. you know, having a few beers and talking and it was fun too because that was like you had a chance to like kind of just sit and chat with people like i had like a lengthy conversation and everybody with was there. Yeah. everybody from the yeah. traveling party everybody from the team everybody was there it was so cool to get to talk to Pasia about just his experience about the whole thing and just just a real just like just genuine conversation with the guy and talked with Cardinal for a little while, and yeah, so there was an opportunity to have some some really nice, genuine conversations with guys there for for that window of time before things got too crazy. And so I walk in the, the back door, which was the back half, and, and it's a Monday night. There weren't very many people there otherwise, but then obviously word spread quickly. Yes, by ten o'clock, the other half of the bar, I mean, was jam. was jam of the people just like you know trying to like make their way over right. to our half of the bar right. at that point. And I was letting, you know, the girls I was interested in over and <laughs> things like that. Uh, so, uh, but what happened was I go there and I'm ready, to, I'm ready to grab a drink within three seconds of getting in there. Mm-hmm. And Cuban is like, hey, no, uh, get something out of my car. Mm-hmm. And throws me his keys. And I'm kind of put out. I'm like, yeah. Yeah, I just got here. Like I, I flew <laughs> and commercial. And you're ordering me to like, get something yeah. out of your car. So I go and I look, I go and open the truck. And stupid me, it's the trophy wrapped in a towel. <laughs> now, remember at this time, it had been at Live, and you had enjoyed seeing it on the plane, but you know, Cuban took it off the plane. He took it home. Mm-hmm. That was it. People yep. in Dallas had not seen the trophy yet. Yep. yep. Other than unless you were at Love Field and saw it when it came right. down the stairs off the plane but at Love Field. In general public, it hadn't been around yet. Yep. So he was letting me bring it in to the loon which i thought was really cool of all people me (laughs) i do remember that (laughs) so i grabbed the bouncer from the loon remember the loon there was very popular weekends there was a line down the street to get in yep so i grab him and i say come here and he looks he's like holy crap he used more colorful language so you either had so it was either mi or brad or mark Mark. it was mi okay (laughs) and i go Grab it. I'll take a picture of you with it. And he said, and I go, I look at him. I point him. I go, I don't care if I show up with 20 people. If I ever have to stand in a line again, he's like, you're Man, through every you, single time. You were throwing your weight around that night. So he opens the back door for me and I walk in with it held above my head and the place just explodes. <laughs> and it was just, that, that's one of the nicest things Mark's ever done for me is let me kind of have that moment. That is, is so really, cool. Really, really cool. I do remember the place went bananas when you walked in with the trophy. And uh, I've got pictures with the trophy from that night because that was my, well, I, I did see it live, but that was the first time I got to really get some fun pictures with it. Uh, you know, we sang to We Are the Champions on the jukebox. The game yep. was playing, as we mentioned. And and, and it is a true story that, that uh, when the game was playing, and like the cardinal stretch of the game in the third quarter, oh. you know, because he was there and he was sitting there. And I mean, I mean, you know, number one, he's one of the all time great people who's ever come through here. And to have that moment and, to, you know, to have that impact in the clinching game where I already talked about is, you know, tied for the team lead and at plus 18 for the game. 
And and so Jet is going to tell some stories. So so one of the things I brought up on on Mavs Rewind, asking those guys about partying after the game, I said, "Hey, look, uh, I was there, you know, at Live and." Uh, $80,000 bottle of champagne or whatever it was. And Jet walked into the loon somewhere around 10 o'clock and immediately ordered 100 shots. And in true Jason Terry, I'm from Seattle fashion, he ordered Washington apples. Okay, I'm glad you mentioned that. I forgot what kind they were. <laughs> yeah, he ordered Washington apples were the shots that he ordered. And everybody is just, you know, the, the whole bar is, is grabbing shots that are coming out on these trays at about 20 at a time. So everybody's getting one. And and Jet brought up, he goes, I remember the loon and how excited everybody got. And the crescendo was building until the moment when Cardinal hit the three-pointer. Even Jet will have that, will tell that story tomorrow when you can hear it or, or tonight if you're listening on Wednesday on Mavs Play Every One on Fox Southwest. And and it's funny. So my friend Justin Moore, who was a bartender at the loon at the time, tells a story that uh, Jet was ordering those shots. Well, he did that more than once. <laughs> And Jet's rules, whenever he just twirled his finger, that meant 100 more shots. And so Justin, who was our bartender back there, would look over and Jet would just twirl his finger and then it was 100 more. And so by the end of the night, by 2 a.m., you know, this is seven hours deep. Mm-hmm. And the Loon is a dive bar. There's no bottle service. Right. Yeah, you know, there's some burgers and stuff, but this is single drinks, shots. The bill was $12,000. <laughs> I never heard what the bill was before. And Mark had left. Everybody left, and, and I somehow get the bill because I had set things up. And I'm like, I, you know, okay. I go to Dirk. I'm like, listen, I'm, I can ship him, but he's like, don't worry about it. He grabs it, pays the whole bill. <laughs> oh, way to go, Dirk. I think we took Tuesday night off, and then Wednesday was another party, which bled into the parade. Yes, yes. And 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 Tuesday and Wednesday, oh gosh. Well, I think that you and I met up somewhere on Wednesday. Yeah, I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, we went it was. to some uh place in the design district that had a party. Is yeah. what I remember. And then Thursday was the parade. Thursday night ended up being and and I was really surprised that this happened. The the in arena podium Inter- you know where we got to interview all the guys and stuff like that. The interview that my mom still refers to whenever she talks about it. Well, son, I just I just thought that was so sweet. Whenever you made Dirt cry, and it's like, well, I don't think I did that, but I just you know said a lot of great things about him, and my mom somehow has it in her mind that I made him cry. <laughs> but I uh, I was walking off the stage, and Rick comes up and puts his arm around me and whispers. He said, "There's a get together at Nick and Sam's tonight, eight o'clock. Come come on by." And so that was super cool too, because that was basically um, that was like coaches, uh, players. Sarah was there, and Coop and I got to go to that. And I mean, that was a very, very small select group. And uh, at some point in time during that, Rick got the. Uh, I don't know if I guess there probably wasn't a mic in there, but it was in a private room at Nick and Sam's. And Rick stood up and said something about every person in the room, about you know not what the players contributed, what, e- what each individual coach contributed. I think he said, you know, I mean, it's about to come out that Dwayne Casey, you know, he's got a great opportunity. He's going to be moving on to, uh, he didn't say specifically Toronto, but that's what it was. But, you know, he's about to be leaving us for another great opportunity. And, you know, Monty Mathis is going to be moving up into his role. And so he went around and said something about all of the, all of the, you know, 
PR people that were there, Scott Tomlin and Sarah Melton that were all there. And he said something about, you know, Followell, I consider you a great friend. And I'm so glad that you're here tonight. And Coop, I don't know what you were thinking today, interviewing Deshaun Stevenson for so long on the podium. And <laughs> yeah, that was, I do remember because Deshaun was purple drinked up. He did, yeah. We all saw that train wreck. <laughs> so it was just, I mean, Rick literally went, you know, person by person in the room and said something about each person and what they meant to him and, uh, you know, what they meant to the experience and the staff. And, you know, and I think, and, and I said players, and I'm sorry, I don't think players were actually at that. I think that was coaching staff and basketball ops staff, you know, the Keith Grants and Al right. Whitley and, you know, so guys who are assistant general managers and trainers and equipment managers. I, I, I forgive me, my maybe I had a little bit of the details wrong there. I don't think there were any players there. It was coaching staff, basketball operations staff and rick was nice enough to invite chuck and i to to come to that as well well you know part you, of the traveling i part. think people you know they see kind of rick is always stern and all that they, they they don't see the thoughtful and sensitive side he has yes and he does have one you know uh we had a dinner for dirk kind of a retirement dinner mm-hmm. about a year ago and uh you know he got up and said a few words and he was wearing the suit that he wore on June 12, 2011. Yeah. And he yeah, said cool. that, you know, he he has never washed it. It still had all the stains from <laughs> champagne and everything on it and beer. Uh, but that he, after the, you know, when he got back to Dallas, he, he hung it up. And that's the only time that he's worn it since. Yeah, and I that's thought cool, that man. was really, really cool. Yeah. You know, if you if you doubt any of the sincerity and, you know, the the historical perspective that Rick has on the game and his time with the Mavs and being with Dirk. I mean, having, you know, they've shown multiple times, Brian, during this time, the uh, ceremony after the retirement game, after the Phoenix game, after the home game last year, they've shown that ceremony many times and the things that Rick said. And, you know, I thought it was so classy that Rick had called Don Nelson and Avery Johnson that day, you know, who were, who were, you know, obviously Dirk's two other coaches in the NBA and, and to get those comments and, you know, the funny stories that he told and, you know, Rick making cracks about Nelly having been probably smoking and, you know, (laughs) having weed or something like that. So it just, there's a, there's an incredibly thoughtful, warm, observant about people around him and observant about things and, you know, knows people and remembers things about people. It takes him a while to warm up. It took took about two years to figure out what the deal with me was because I wasn't working for the team, but I was kind of you know, hanging around. And you were definitely friend, not room. foe. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and he finally got, I think it was the trip to Germany for the um, documentary, Dirk's documentary premiere that we did, the surprise, when we surprised him out there. Right. And we took the team plane out there and we got to know each other and you have long dinners and mm-hmm. that kind of thing. And so, you know, when you're with somebody for a concentrated amount of time, that's when he finally, you know, realized what the heck I was. But let me get your thoughts on the parade. Were you in the parade itself? Yeah, I was. And that, what was that experience like? Uh, kind of a blur. I mean, it was so hot already that day. And what my recollection of that was, Skin and I smoking cigars on the float that we were on with other broadcasters. Nothing and like just, a 10 a.m. cigar. Yeah, nothing like that. And, I mean, probably the last cigar I've ever had in my life. Um, and I just remember like the energy of the crowd. I mean, I was kind of just like a goofball the whole time, like doing so much like, um, well, you know, I'm a pro wrestling fan 
So doing so much of the Hulk Hogan thing, and do you remember growing up what oh, Hulk Hogan would used can to I do? Hear you? Yeah, where he like sits there and leans to one side of the crowd and does his and like is waving one yeah. hand and then waves it up to where it's like behind his ear. Can I hear? Well, that's you? better than just waving like you're, yeah. you know, like like. Oh man! Because I mean, as I'll, they're waiting for players to come by, there's there's Falwell and Skin. Well, what I what I didn't realize at the time, what I wasn't really thinking about was that I had to do that with Chuck. We had to do that ceremony inside of doing the interviews. And I had just like gone so crazy out there, and it was just like thirty minutes in the parade of screaming and yelling and smoking a cigar, and and I got done and realized like I'd almost like yelled my voice out, and I was pretty fortunate that I kind of like got it back together to to be able to do that and not and not to be really raspy sounding like this the whole time and you know be, being able to get through it, but but that's. You know the parade, unfortunately, is kind it had of to be a blur. A rush, though. Yeah, it was a, it was a rush, and what so what I did do was I took a lot of pictures, and so I have a scrapbook at home with a lot of pictures from the perspective of being in the parade, and so I do remember that part of it. Um, and I and and funny story is that that uh, uh, you know I'm pretty pretty good friends with Bob Fitzgerald, who's the TV voice of the Golden State Warriors, and so when they won their first title in 2015. Um, and I sent him a text at some point in time between their last game and the parade and asked him about when their parade was. And he said something about how he was going to be emceeing and he was going to be in it. And I said, dude, make sure you take your like camera, you know, and then I had like a digital camera. This was still kind of sure. not in the big time camera phone era as much. You know, you had a camera on your phone, but I had right. like my little Sony little pocket digital camera yeah. that I took with me. And I called Bob Fitzgerald in 2015 and I said, man, make sure that you document, you know, because you're going to want, because you're not going to, it's going to be a blur. blur. You're not going to remember it and you're going to want keepsake photos from it. And, and still to this day, he brings that story up every once in a while about how grateful he was that I had suggested to him, you know, that, you know, to make sure to do that because he did and, you know, has some, some really good uh, documented memories of it. And I'm, I'm glad that I did that. Well, as you well. guys did a great job on, on the the post game celebration, which was uh, all the season ticket holders got to go in the arena after the parade. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, you know, obviously it stands out and jets motioning up and telling Brad Davis to move over and make way for his number <laughs> yeah. in the rafters, which is very jet. Um, but I think it, it also stood out that, you know, every single player was interviewed. Rick was interviewed. It, like I said before, every player had a moment. Yep. Whether it was Corey or JJ or Peja with the Mother's Day Massacre and another mm -hmm. game that he was Mahimi. great in, like yep. Uyan. Brendan really Haywood had good games. You know, Brendan Haywood got hurt during the finals. That's why Miami yeah. was having to play. Brendan Haywood didn't play the last couple of games yeah. of the finals, but he had, uh, you know, I remember during this playoff series, the Laker game too. Uh, he was very good in that particular game. He was quite good in Oklahoma City game three, yes. the game that the Mavericks won. And so. Karan, you know, who definitely was a vital part of getting them to 62 wins that year Yep, uh, when he was healthy. So you guys did a really good job there. I was over in the uh, kind of, People not in the parade, kind of right at the end. We had right. a little uh, area to sit in and watch the watch the end of the route, and then we walked through the players' tunnel down and, and uh, into the locker room for uh, you know a little some refreshments before that ceremony started. Mm -hmm. And I remember walking through there and thinking because the, the parade went, I guess, south to north on whatever street that is. Uh, to the arena, that Houston? was the route. Yeah, Did it go up Houston? Really yeah. I guess it is. Um, so the Victory Plaza people didn't see the floats, right? And but there were a ton of people in there, mm -hmm. 
And I remember I, I talked to um, the security guys and to Dirk as I was walking, we were walking through and said, you know, you should go up to the balcony. I'm kind of patting myself on the back here, but you know, the <laughs> famous song of we are the champions, right. that was not planned. There was no plan to go up on that balcony. I was like, you know, you guys should go up there. It's right outside the platinum level mm -hmm. and just kind of wave to the, the people in the plaza. Right. And so, um, they're like, sure. And so they went up, I didn't go up there, but they went up and, and I went and we, we were watching it live in the locker room as you know, TV stations are covering it. Sure. And that's when that spontaneous moment <laughs> occurred. So I'm going to take a still little. still like one of the best wins ever. So I'm going to take a little credit for that happening. I'm sure somebody would have thought of that. Man, you, you you organized the party at Live. You carried the trophy into the loon and you organized the uh, Dirk. You have like a hand in the Dirk spontaneous rendition of We Are the Champions at the on the well, plaza. Well, you know, you did pray. So <laughs> I did go to the Greek Catholic Church and pray. So. <laughs> And the other thing, and I mentioned this briefly, is the one suit, one shirt, one tie. Mavs fans remember, in 06, uh, Miami came to Dallas for a game six when they were up 3-2. Yep. And after their win, Pat Riley was asked, you know, were you, how did you approach this? Were you planning, you know, thinking what you would have to do in a game seven? And he responded by saying, I packed one suit, one shirt, and one tie. Yeah. Which was also reminiscent of something similar Jordan had said, uh, in the 93 finals after they had lost yes. game five. They had Having a chance to go to Phoenix and yep. play. Yeah, they had they lost game five at home, so they were up 3-2 going to Phoenix and had to play game six and potentially game seven. But, yeah, Jordan said, I'm packing one. You know, that, that story has now been recounted from then. One shirt, one suit, one tie. And so that was the, the Mavs motto going into game six in Miami was one yep. suit, one shirt, one tie. And they also wore the dark suits because of the funeral. We're going to put them in the grave when you have closeout games, which yep. is kind of a motto throughout that that playoff run. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, it was just, you know, and then seeing when you're in Miami, seeing the pictures of, you know, the American airlines center being packed out every night mm -hmm. to watch it on the jumbotron. Yep. And those are, I, I encourage people to go on YouTube and look those up. People's home videos of that. Yeah. I need to it check is, that out. Yeah. People are going absolutely bonkers. Yep. In there. Game two. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I remember ABC showing some shots of game two of what it was like there. And I guess at that time, I didn't even really realize that that was going on to that degree back there. At that and point. for us, who partied in Miami Sunday night, uh, you know, apparently the streets of Dallas were just mayhem that Sunday night. Yeah, here, yeah. Around absolutely. there and uptown and just people honking their horns until all hours <laughs> of the night, which had to be just absolutely amazing. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was, listen, we spent quite a long time going I mean, we through did this, an hour but, and a half man you know this I, is our longest podcast ever it's uh this good memories and good times and i don't think it's it's ever bad to look back on it and this has been kind of a nice break in the schedule to to have time to think about it and have time yeah. to for you guys to really have those interviews with the players and coaches that you normally probably wouldn't have time to do yeah and i and i think that you know Obviously, this all probably would have happened next year as a 10th anniversary celebration of it. So now I don't know what that means for the 10th anniversary because basically, you know, the, the pandemic situation has, has put us in a position where the celebration has happened this year. And I have no earthly idea what anybody's planning for next year. And I think that uh, the state of the world is such that we probably don't need to be making too many distant plans out because who knows what kind of position we're going to be in with uh, what the what the 2000. 
I mean, obviously, we have no idea what the rest of, if in fact there is one, 2019-20 season looks like. And then we have no idea what the 2020-2021 season will look like as well. So, I mean, this has served as the de facto 10th anniversary sort of celebration just a year early because of the uh, unprecedented circumstances that we're in. Well, in light of that, and I do want to touch on some of the news here at the end, but before we get to that, so let's, I've been asking this question to some of my Mavs friends, whether it be Jake or Machine or, or whoever. Uh, and I've gotten a similar response, and it's the same response I have, so I'd be interested to see what it is for you. But if I were to say, um, do you expect the Mavs to win a title the next 10 years? I mean, it's hard as we experience what it was like just to get that one in 2011. So do I expect it? I mean, my honest answer to that, Brian, would be I expect them to compete for one. Yeah. And that's about that's about all I'm willing to say because just having lived through it once before, I know how hard it is. And or so, do you think they will? Because my answer is yes. I, I, as crazy as it sounds, and, and, and the people I've asked have all answered the same way and answered quickly, like it, it's, it's insane to say that out loud considering it's been nine years since we won. Yeah. Um, but I, I think, this team will win a championship in the next 10 years. Well, I think they have the components to compete for it and, and to maybe just, uh, you know. Just to kind of put yeah. a blanket, you know, forced answer on it. Yeah, I think, you know, I, listen, the Lakers and the Clippers are, are, you know, high up right now, but there is a window if, if health and team building goes well that this could be a dominant team in three or four years that is on top of the Western Conference for a number of years. Yes, yes, you're exactly right. It could be. Um, now, we've seen Oklahoma City screw it up. We've seen Orlando back in the 90s screw it up, yes. But but just as a you know snapshot gut answer, mm-hmm. um, as crazy as it sounds, because it is so difficult. Portland got to the finals twice in three years and couldn't get over the hump. Utah back-to-back. Seattle got to the finals. As crazy as it sounds, I, I think they will. Well, um, I hope you're right. Yeah, like I said, I'm, my my feelings about it are I expect them to compete for one, but you know this the the actually getting over the hump is so difficult uh, as we just reminisce about the 2011 stuff that that's that's about the best I'm willing to give you at this point. Well, I push as hard as I can, but yep. you know, listen, the '80s Mavs <laughs> and we talked to about them with Moody Madness. They they got to Game Seven of the Western Conference Finals, couldn't yeah. get any farther. The Dirk Mavs obviously won after a failed appearance in '06. This is the Luka and KP Mavs, and so, you know, if and when they win, uh, it will be as exciting as the stories we just told because it's a whole new... Yes. It's a whole new generation. Yes. And if it's going to happen, it's probably going to happen much earlier in Luka's career relative to Dirk, so it might be kind of a position where it's like this... If they're good enough to win it once, in obviously... His 20s. Yeah, if they're good enough to win it once in his 20s, and then presumably they would be good enough to win it more than once. So what would be different and unique about that is it could be the start of being in a position to do it multiple times. And, you know, this was a, you know, you know the last best chance and the one time and, and that sort of thing, which makes it very special and makes it very unique. And that's why you reminisce about it nine and ten years later after the fact. But, I mean, presumably if the Mavs did win one, you would think it would be ushering in a window of time where they would have a chance at more than that. So that's what would be also really unique and special about it. And it's fun to be at this point of a development of a team and a player like that. To, yeah. To kind of, it's exciting to see the, yeah. the build up again. Which, which is what's so demoralizing. Uh, and look, I mean, everybody in every segment of society has reasons to be down and demoralized about what's transpired right now. And, and uh, you know, that's just one of, 
one of them from the Mavs perspective is that this was going to be the time when Luka and KP were starting to get that first taste of it. And if the season resumes, at least they're going to get to play playoff basketball, but it's not the playoff basketball. It's not going to be the atmosphere of what playoff basketball typically is. It'll it'll help. It'll be a good learning experience, but it won't be the same thing. Well, let's get a quick update of where we stand with the NBA news uh, after you and I broke news last week on SportsCenter. Yeah. <laughs> um, Adam Silver and the, and the Players Association had a call on Friday. Uh, so give us the latest on kind of where we stand. Well, Adam Silver's discussion with the players uh, was, you know, very, very forthright, very serious that uh, the CBA is not built for a pandemic uh, with the fact that, we're you know, until there's a vaccine, we're probably going to be managing this in different ways. And this, quite frankly, uh, you know, because of the revenue that is produced, even though you and I have talked about the fact that national TV contracts are so big, that does help offset the lost revenue of games where fans aren't there. Uh, Adam Silver said that, that, you know, you could say that 40% of league revenues are derived from the game night experience. What happens a million on and a half night. per team per night. Yeah. So not per uh, team, but a million and a half for the home team per night. So he, he pointed out that this could be the biggest challenge of our lives collectively, uh, you know, talking with the players apparently is what he was said on the call. And so that's kind of where we are. I believe that Silver told them that, uh, you know, getting enough testing was kind of one of the biggest hurdles that they needed to clear, feeling like that they had access to all the tests that they possibly needed. And I think that he told them as well that um, the idea is that the best bet, the best course of action is to have it in one or two sites. So there's the Las Vegas and Orlando thing again. As we talked about with Cuban last week. But to also not make it a situation where you are in a position where you have to go and sit in a hotel room for two months. You know, where there is, where you're not so restricted that you're basically, uh, you know, you're in a room and in just one little, one hotel property for two months. I don't know what that means in terms of how unrestricted the movement would be, but, but, you know, he did seem to indicate that they wanted to, you know, to not make this as, uh, you know, as like completely like shelter in place as maybe we think it has to be. And and to be honest, you know, if you look at, uh, Olympics, summer leagues, you know, they're in hotels for a long period of time. They can go to the pool, they can go work out, they can do things like that. If they can keep that whole bubble safe, then they can be in a resort area mm-hmm. and move around. It's not necessarily a hotel room. Right. But they aren't really meandering out much outside of that anyway. Yeah. How they keep the bubble safe will be interesting. And if something does happen, what they will do. Now, you know, I keep on reading the things that are being talked about over in Europe. And so obviously, as you know, I'm a tremendous soccer fan, so I'm following it very closely. And all of the protocols continue, although this this isn't happening uniformly already. There's one team that's had to go into complete quarantine, self-isolation. But And so they're going to miss the restart of the season this week. They're a second division team, not a top division team in Germany. Uh, at least as of the recording of this, that looks like that's what's going to happen. But, but you know, everybody is saying that, well, if, if a player tests positive, they're just going to be pulled out of the mix and everybody else will continue to go forward as long as there's no indication that an outbreak is occurring within the team. So that's, 
that's what's going to be really interesting to watch because I think the perception is that everybody feels like is you have to build this bubble, and if there's just one right. blip on the radar, again, yeah. if there's just one blip on the radar from, and I think people are carrying it all the way to if a food worker comes in and is positive and interacts with enough of people that that causes a problem, then we're going to have to stop the whole thing. And I'm not getting any of that vibe from people that are in place to actually execute these plans over in Europe. And, you know, and I would presume that we would try to use that as some sort of blueprint blueprint here for what we do. I think that's correct. Um, You know, because that's that's an untenable plan. If you're going to say, yeah, that 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 uh, that if one person gets into the bubble who has a positive result, then it puts us back at square one. I, I, you know, look, they tested, as I told you last week, they tested 1724 Bundesliga first division and second division team players and staff. And out of 1,724 tests, 10 people turned up positive. And they're still planning. And and the government said, that's okay. We give you permission to reopen. Every Major League Baseball employee went on a test, and I think the 0.7% positive on that one. So Wow, okay. So, yeah. Um, you know, and the other part is that the CBA, discussions on whether you cancel the CBA or not, because the league does have a force majeure clause to to cancel the CBA, which currently goes through the 2024 season, there's a mutual out in 2023, um, has been extended to September. So all of this talk about, you know, how do we uh, handle, you know, financially, you know, the drop in revenue, the cap, the everything that has to go on, um, at least the Association League are in agreement that, you know, let, let's give us some breathing room to figure that out. Uh, you know, I think that Silver said on the call, we don't even have to make a decision in the month of May, that we still could make a decision in early June about this. I think he referenced a three-week ramp-up period for a three-week training camp seemed to be... Three to six weeks. Yep, yep, that number came So up. the idea is still, you know, mid-July would kind of be the... the you're going to either play or not play by mid-July. And and I and I suppose, and look, I, I do think maybe we do have to start introducing this aspect into the equation that, um, like Steve Kerr has said, you know, they've had Zoom calls with Golden State players and the sense with those guys is that this is it, that they're not going to be coming back. And I guess that there is, especially if you're trying to construct a scenario that is as safety first as possible, um, What's the point in bringing the nine or ten teams that have zero shot of making the playoffs? What's the point in bringing them back after a three-month layoff to get in shape? And so you risk COVID-19 safety issues and safety protocol, and you risk basketball injury because you're going to be trying to get back in shape after how limited your workouts have probably been over the last three months, and then or last two months, and by then three months. And then you're going to try to get back in shape to play a handful of games that don't matter. So I do think that as in hearing what he said and looking at the directions that we're moving, the idea that it wouldn't be the whole league that restarts and that you would have. And I think Silver referred to the idea that there would be like that they wouldn't just take the top eight teams from each conference that there would be. And this wouldn't be good for the Mavs, to be honest with you. This would be problematic for the Mavs that there might have to be for the last 
two or three spots, you know, to give the teams that still had a chance in the last 15 games of the year. Kind of a seven, eight, nine, ten play in tournament. Yep. Yep. Even, even you could go, you could go six, eight, seven, nine, ten, eleven. You can make, you can make it a play in tournament for three yeah, spots. I, I, I agree with you. I so. think that may be where they end up. So they don't have the, to send every yeah. team down. Yeah. What's teams the point that are, in bringing Golden State and New right. York and Cleveland and teams who are long since out of it and have nothing to play for? Right. I mean, what's, and it also reduces the number of players and, and, and people in the bubble. Uh, listen, this, you know, they've had two strike shortened seasons, not playing all the regular season games is not a big deal. Um, you know, they can get, they can do the imbalance of total number of games played, solve it with this play in tournament because of the top seeds are already in the playoffs securely and and go from there. And then you do have to figure out, I mean, you've got to play some kind of structured game situations though, before you put teams in a place where they're playing games for their playoff lives. Basically, I mean, something has to happen there. I don't know what the answer to that is, but some kind of structured competition game between other teams has yeah. to happen. Yeah, you yeah. don't want the first games out of the box when they've been off for several months to be playoff. Yeah, be, yeah be deciding your playoff fate at that point. Right. So, Well, that's where we are. We went super mega long, but uh, we had fun doing it. Yeah, we did. And uh, I encourage everyone to go back and listen to our old podcast. We've had a slew of big guests. We've had Cuban and Dirk and... Uh, Kevin Sullivan and Rowe. We've got Madness, Casey Smith, Matt Mavericks Casey. athletic trainers, or Mavericks, uh, former Mavericks athletic trainer, now uh, director of player health and performance. So a lot of good stuff. And uh, and then obviously Wednesday night, we can all uh, enjoy it. the games five and six of the finals in 2011, plus an hour long conversation. Who's on that uh, rewind? Dirk, Jet, Marion, JJ, and Rick. Excellent. Yep, going to be good stuff, man. So enjoy it. Let's uh, let's have some good memories this week to get through another coronavirus quarantine week, and we'll be back with you next week with uh, seventy-seven minutes of that.